0: Melting faces and blackening bone. We are the raging firestorm of rebellion. 665.66UHMR ChemRat Radio. Coming to you live tonight from Joe's Sump Shack.
1: Yo, Gabo. You think these glass eaters ever know the joy of sump crustaceans? Or do you think they always are just uh, too busy starting shit in the underhive? A new glass eater prophet has stirred them up. Can't even go a month without some uh, new cult war going on it's a damn shame but uh more more room in the habs right you know opens up residents new <laughs> new new realtors just popping up all over the place
0: <laughs> your friendly neighborhood arbide's realtor here probably just a matter of time until the dangons get involved again don't you think damn dangons. And
1: Dagon dangons yeah <laughs>
0: I am your captain for tonight's journey into the unraveling of the Cosmos Goblin King, joined, as always, by my co-pilot, the mad mauler of Misfit Alley himself, Margie.
1: The greatest of them all that always shows up to every episode of the podcast. (laughs) That's right. Also, also Ryan. uh, That doesn't doesn't (laughs) let Ryan down, because none of y'all motherfuckers show up to the podcast. It's always me. And you know what? I'm the one who never has anything to say about it. Ryan's like, Horace Horace killed Sanguinius, and I'm like, holy shit, what else happened? Where Tom is like, well, actually, he decapitated his penis and put it in his ass, inserted it into his rectum, and then banished him from existence into the Shadow Realm. Shot him in the head, threw him in the river. <laughs> Sa- Sanguinius is you just Rasputin. Yeah, I was gonna say you think Rasputin had it <laughs> bad. Had it bad yeah. You should have seen what Horace did, Sanguinius.
0: Good old Sangui. Yeah, what did we call him last time? Sanguilius. Oh, dude, sang- yeah, Sanguilius. <laughs> sanguilius. Good <old> sang- <laughs> Sanguilius. Sangria for all of your blood angel needs. <laughs>
1: four rednecks in Kentucky. Sangu-
0: Sanguinillus. I like how it's just getting worse. The way we pronounce it's just more and more downhill. <laughs> you know we're on like a, I, I know it's I know it's episode 86, but you know this is like because of our our side content and all of our our unnumbered episodes, this is like release 126. Is it really? Yeah, we've been doing this for 126 weeks.
1: <laughs> to me, every episode is like <clears throat> episode xx. Dot Six nine. That, that's pretty much how
0: I see every episode. Oh, okay. Okay. So y- you record time the way the Imperium does. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's m O right, D right. m- it w- m- be... six nine. Yeah. M
1: <laughs> M six nine dot one two six. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much how it goes down in my head every time. Gotcha, gotcha. Dash four twenty. So I was gonna say so when here.
0: we get to 420.M96, m 69 six m your mind blown. <laughs> It'll be like a fuse going off.
1: We'll have to, we'll have yeah. to
0: reset you.
1: Yeah, we keep talking about that episode. If we if we reach episode four twenty, uh-huh. I mean, we're just gonna have to do it high on something.
0: I have no idea what. I it, Yeah, I mean, it, it, if we're lucky, we'll be done talking about space marines by then.
1: Yeah, if I do a whip it, I'll be more dumb than what I am right now.
0: And the the bar
1: is already set real low. So it's just if I do a whip it. Yeah, if I do a whip it,
0: my last brain cell will will blow his brains up. We'll just we'll just give Marky like brown sugar and he'll lose his mind. Yeah, I'm done. Like, I'm done What, what drug is this? It's just sugar, Marky. It's that's all it is. Are you sure? It's <laughs> booger booger sugar. I can't feel my face, guys. I can't, I can't feel, feel my face. It's just brown <laughs> sugar, dude.
1: Jesus. Yeah. And Chuck Chuck doesn't get to do his warp dust, you know? That's he, all
0: Chuck uh, Chuck's always doing warp dust. That's yeah, what he does. He's
1: constantly on. It. He just he's like uh he's like Scarface, he's right? He's like Tony was it Tony Montana? Is that is that his name? Yeah, Tony, Tony Montana. Mon- I, yeah, Tony I, but, Montana is just fucking warp dust on his desk at work. And he's just fucking <laughs>
0: Rips the whole the whole rail. He's San, he's Thanquil over there, <laughs> snorting mountains of the shit so he can take out that damn dwarf. Like what's all that trick? S- and that human Felix. <laughs> yeah. what's all that stuff all over your face, Chucker?
1: Oh, you know, warp dust. Why why you got green powder all over your it's face? It's supposed bud. to go in your nose, not on your face. <laughs> I, you know, it just it gets everywhere. Yeah. I like, I like the feeling of
0: it. <laughs> I like the, like the grain thunder. <laughs> makes, faith. makes me feel alive. <laughs> it it makes puts hair beautiful. on my chest. <laughs> so now that we got all that out of the way, welcome to episode 86 of Under the Hive of Madness Horus Heresy Part 2. We had originally planned to cover both the Istvan 3 atrocity and the drop site massacre of Istavan 5 more in brief. However, as we've done our research, it's become more apparent that these two events really shape how the Legions split in the coming conflict. And once the Legions split, what was a Chaos Space Marine and what was a Space Marine were kind of set in stone. There's also a lot of foundational and important figures who helped shape stuff in the 41st millennium. Mark and I were talking about this earlier, specifically with like the 13th Black Crusade. And of course, the way that the game functioned between like what? Third edition and seventh edition, realistically?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's about when all that stuff was going down. I think right. uh, it was eighth where
0: uh, spoiler, Katie gets blown up, right? Yeah, yeah, it's the end of seventh where where Katie dies. We already talked about. Kadia dying though so that it's been spoiled
1: <laughs> yeah no i just i gotta throw it in there you know somebody starts on episode 126 the first one they're like ah oh, you fucking ruined the 40k experience for me you on told me yeah, yeah, was a bunch of space rocks well why, what do you mean it's dead it was alive it's
0: before <laughs> it's, it, 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 it was
1: yeah. <laughs> katia was just a, a what do you call it a fucking constellation of fucking meteorites and shit
0: I heard Kadia was in Alderaan places.
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. Uh, that's for, that's for Patrick right This is The old man episode <laughs> today. The old man episode, yeah. yeah it's going to
0: happen. Uncle, Uncle Corner. So because of that, the next two episodes we're doing are actually going to largely focus on those specific battles, their aftermaths, and a lot of the events that came from them. As an example... Nathaniel Garo's Flight of the Eisenstein, which helped lay some of the very early foundations for what would become the Astartes chapters that don't have a Loyalist Legion founding. Quick examples would be the Grey Knights and Death Watch. Even though there isn't necessarily a direct link, the fact that the Flight of the Eisenstein happened allowed for chapters like the Grey Knights and the Death watch to become founded
1: dude I, I thought that was the whole title of the book there for a second not just the author placed in front of the title and i was like holy shit that's a mouthful that's like one of those animes that, that have like a oh. paragraph for their title <laughs> what was it uh nathaniel garo's flight of the eisenstein i was like holy shit dude who, <laughs> who came I,
0: up with that title i think fire, it's fire actually... that guy it's Grav Thorpe that wrote Flight of the Eisenstein. Nathaniel Garo is the Death Watch captain.
1: Oh, okay, okay. You, you know who Garo is. Uh, I probably know of him, but the
0: name's not ringing a bell right now. Gotcha. We, we, we've, uh, we've, talked, we've talked about him in the past, but yeah. There are a couple of novels that seem like that in the uh, Warhammer 40K universe, I feel. I can't think of any examples right now, but I want to say there's a couple of anime titles now that you put it that way. I always look at them as ancient alien titles. Like, have you ever watched the, the show Ancient Aliens?
1: Uh, no, I might have, like, in
0: passing maybe, but... So they'll talk to some author, and the guy will be like, well, yeah, when I wrote my book in a blue sky <laughs> over a green field as to where the gods once uh, built a, a pyramids, <laughs> and." eye-opening investigation of aliens inside farmer's rectums i wrote about and i'm like jesus christ is that the fucking (laughs) was that the whole title that's a (laughs) paragraph bro like what's what's it called shit i gotta uh,
1: unpack that what's it called when they have like that short story on the inside of the uh on the inside flap the the, the The book book. summary (laughs) (laughs) yes the book summary of the that's your title (laughs) (laughs)
0: on a brief day in may while i looked up at the sky so blue i saw late like dude bro Just, just call the book like aliens touched my 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 butt. Like, come (laughs) on, bro. Like, that's all. That's all you need. Aliens have big fingers. (laughs) In my book, aliens have big fingers. You know what? You know, I'd have a lot of respect for the guy that wrote in my book. Aliens have big fingers. (laughs) I'd, I'd I'd be good with that. I'd be like, all right, all right, I like it. I dig it.
1: That's already caught my attention, right? You know, you'd I'd read that book. I'm reading this. Do I aliens mean, have big fingers? Like, how does he know? The, <laughs> is that what
0: the butt stuff is all about? Good old hand probing. All right, man. So uh, you've got, you got a yep. quote to start us off today.
1: Yes, this is from uh, an anonymous traitor legionary. Horus is the rightful master of mankind, he is the one who has led us to triumphs undreamed of. He is the one who has conquered 10,000 worlds. He will lead us in the conquest of 10,000 more. Cast down the false emperor. Hail the war master. That's some heresy right there. Good old heresy. Heresy. <laughs> good old heresy. Yeah. As Lana will never let us live it down. The good old heresy. That might be my, so th- that, that might be a minion too. <laughs> <laughs> right. And Mullins. The- and Sammy. Uh, we're just, just going to go down the list of all of our uh, community.
0: But it's just the heresy. It's, yeah, just, it's the, just what it is. The man. horse. The horse heresy. The horse heresy. <laughs> oh, God. The Istvan III atrocity. It is said that an ancient Terran proverb says, All wars, no matter how bloody or great, begin with but a single shot fired. For those living in the imperium of man in the 31st millennium, who were about to be consumed in the cataclysmic events of the Horus Heresy, that proverbial first shot was fired on the world of Istvan III. While the Battle of Prospero waged and marked the first conflict that truly saw the Astartes fight Astartes, Istvan III would prove to be the first time Battle Brother fought Battle Brother, and the Space Marines would fight one another on a mass scale. Just to kind of lay it out here at the beginning of the episode... The burning of Prospero is ending about the time istvan 3 starts. And when, and when I say starts, I mean when the drop pods start falling on the planet, not when that the military action starts. Because like Warhammer 40k, people are separated by light years. So a lot of times, by the time they get a message that they even needed to go to a conflict, it, the message may have been sent six months before. but. All of this stuff is kind of happening, overlapping each other at this point in history.
1: The the whole time space
0: continuum. That's right. (laughs) In layman's terms, just (laughs) if you go back and kiss your mother, you'll vanish from your family photo unless you play Johnny Be Good,
1: dude. (laughs) Get your parents
0: to kiss.
1: (laughs) Have you seen the new episode of Rick and Morty? I have the new uh, season.
0: There's a I've seen I've seen one episode of the new season.
1: There's one where uh it's uh like fortune cookies, like what you get in fortune cookies actually like comes, uh, becomes comes reality. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And one of them is uh <clears throat> I'm not gonna say who got it, but one of them is uh you're gonna you're gonna fuck your mother. And <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> I'm just gonna lay okay. I'm just gonna leave okay. that there. Okay. And okay. uh yeah, it's uh it's a pretty gnarly episode
0: i would uh i would check it out i saw like obviously you've you've seen back to the future right yeah yeah. yeah. like the whole storyline is essentially don't make the mistake of fucking your mother like that's yeah. the entire plot of that movie Marty, no Stop, <laughs> Marty, man. don't fuck your mother bro <laughs> <Don't> do <it. laughs> whatever you do <laughs> yeah Like,
1: I, dude <laughs> hey man oh I my god he didn't know she was a hoe until he got in
0: that car with her it was just
1: He's like, I thought we were have just you, having a conversation. No. Have you
0: seen? Uh, have you seen the the DC animated movie, The Flash? I would uh, say that it I would yes. say that it was people, but I watched the first te- first fifteen minutes of that CGI mess and was like, there are actors in this. They paid people, not just studios. Um, uh, maybe not
1: then. Uh, it, it's it's bad. Oh, well, uh, if it's bad then i probably haven't seen it I, i'm like the animated uh, ones i actually really I enjoy them like the flash well, no, no, paradox it's,
0: it's the one with people
1: oh like, no i probably haven't like, seen
0: like it. the the uh, ben affleck is batman and the the dude that is it like the newest used, one that came out yeah it's the, the newest latest? one yeah, uh, it's the i latest have not one. seen it no. I, it's, tried, it's I tried it's a watching cgi it. mess like yeah i I, and I'll I'll be relatively forgiving for, C, but your CGI one, your CGI shouldn't look like it came out of the early 2010s. Yeah. Two, it looks don't like rely on CGI that much. You like ever use seen, CGI uh, to fix things or you ever make seen, into the Spider Verse, like you know what I mean? Oh, what the hell is sorry.
1: No, cool. uh, no, no you're good. Uh, It's Scorpion bring King the, with the
0: rock. Okay. Yeah. Oh my god, dude. <laughs> just it's so it's like that right as much as i love those movies like that entire mummy franchise the cgi the rock's face was awful it was so bad (laughs) it's actually the funny thing is have you ever watched those um cgi artist reacts things that i post every once in a while no i I don't think i have it's corridor digital who are some guys that do some like relatively cool like youtube content Mm -hmm. and they they do a series called cgi artists react and they did one to that and like they break it down and and honestly like in hindsight as bad as it is and as jarring as it is in hindsight it's really not that bad even considering like cgi that came out 10 years later which is sad which is sad like it was a before it's time (laughs) yeah i think (laughs) they they had uh they had bioware in the the infamous bioware face before bioware released the Dude. mass effects games <laughs> yeah,
1: interesting times uh, interesting yeah, <laughs> practical well, effects are, are always the way to go i feel
0: i just may like i being that we made a couple of horror movies and we made a couple of zombie movies at at one point in the 20 well begin, early 2010s like 2012 2013 2014 yeah it it really was a mixture of practical real world special effects and then using the vfx using the cgi to push it yeah to it. enhance it right yeah like i we're not we didn't do squib for bullet entries but we did squibs for bullet exits so a lot of times when like blood splatter came out of some the back of somebody's head or something like that that was a practical effect and then we would just add the blood puff on the front and then you do, you don't need to put a hole you just do a blood puff and then everybody is is very focused on the fact that there's just a splatter out of the back <laughs> of the head, like you don't, you know, your brain fills in more than you realize. Yeah, and like yeah. so and I was saying, like just,
1: enhancing is probably the the way to go. But I mean, just, I'm not a fucking movie it, yeah. maker. Yeah, yeah, I'm just we, back what is a backseat quarterbacking right now.
0: But you're right. I mean, like we did, we did a couple of. Um, I don't think they'll ever. Get off the cutting room floor, so to speak, because we started doing a lot of video game focused content, but we made a like Friday the thirteenth parody we we got we had a friend who has a house out in Borrego, and the house like no one like people only go to the house like every three years, so they kind of try to encourage people to go to it, so like at least somebody walks through it and make sure the air conditioning works. And like, like all of those things that you would normally do that like yeah, don't happen right. because it's a, it's a desert vacation house. Um, and we got, we got access to it. So of course we went out with like 20 of our friends and we, we 100% did 13 teenagers die by the end of this film. Like that, that was it. That was our treatment. We had a killer and we had the, the fact that our 13 teenagers, 13 teenagers no,
1: die at the end of this film
0: i can't i think we called it like slasher fest or something it had a dumb name it, yeah it, and and again it would have it been is, better if
1: you called it 13 teenagers die at the end of this film <laughs>
0: yeah it would have been good and, it, and it's literally like on it's not on the cutting room floor it's it that you know figuratively on the cutting room floor it's on a bunch of hard drives it's never been edited we've never done anything with it but we have all of this footage where we essentially just did that and we did so much practical effects in that that we probably would have almost no CGI work to do. That's uh, crazy. However, uh we would probably have to do a lot of voiceover correction because for whatever reason like when you get your friend here here's the here's the weird downside to doing like professional movie sets or semi-professional movie sets with your friends. Yeah your friends aren't good actors. (laughs) Not at all, dude. (laughs) And and I learned a lot of things between the first zombie film, the 15 minute zombie film we filmed and the 13 friends die film. I learned a lot of things. And one of the biggest tricks I learned was anytime we filmed an action sequence, I would have the actors that were going to be in it either like jog in a circle or do a bunch of jumping jacks because just the like, I've exerted myself a little bit and I'm breathing heavier. Like they stop, they kind of just deliver the line out like semi out of breath or not semi, but like winded essentially rather than like, acting like like unprofessional acting like you're winded because then you get all of this weird over exaggeration that like the human human body doesn't do <laughs> like like nobody delivers a line like they're thinking too hard about being keanu reeves delivering the line that's not natural yep. just just be a little winded and say what you what i asked you to, like and dude but like never thought about it until we filmed those two anyway i'm sorry yeah
1: ta- no time ta- times were uh, times were also different than i remember when i was in that's high true. school uh, they wanted us to do a film on the war in terrorism, or oh the God. war on terrorism, and it was oh uh, just just the member berries of what we did in that film. Like we did an execution, we did an ambush, we did you know the freaking uh, all the
0: things, all the things that were on television. Yeah. Be- <laughs> yeah.
1: And, uh, we did it with like paintball guns. Like we did, uh, like crazy two by fours that had, were like, would throw up dirt to look like explosions. And we edited oh, yeah. and explosions and it was like thinking about it. I'm like, dude, as a, as like a 16 year old doing that stuff, it would, it would not be good nowadays. Like I remember like we had like my little brother in there and like we'd use ketchup packets for the blood. Yep, and, yep, uh, just okay. the fact, just the fact that you're using blood in a high school project movie, <laughs> probably, probably not a good idea. <laughs> just not a good idea <laughs>
0: nowadays. Dude. We, we have a character in the zombie film that we did, which is called city seven. Um, it's on YouTube. If you're listening and you want to go look at it, it's not good. Uh, it, it was a big learning experience. It's not that it's not good because Our filming wasn't good or the acting wasn't good or whatever. The filming is pretty good. Director of photography uh, really knows her shit. She's a really good director of photography. Uh, The director and I know how to lay out scenes and know how to do action sequences, but it was our first time working with a massive time budget. Um, We were supposed to have eight hour filming days and we ended up filming for like 16, 17 hours so we could get pickups and we can fix things. Uh, it was our first time working with some of the actors that we had worked with. And and I hadn't figured out as a produ- as a producer and like second director and like writer, I hadn't quite figured out the trick. I knew all the special effects. I knew how to make all of And when I say special effects, I mean the, the like physical effects, the, um, Can't even remember. We were just talking about it. I can't remember the fucking term for it. Practical effects. Practical. Thank you. All the the practical special effects. I know I've got all that stuff down, and we did. I feel like we did really well with a lot of that stuff. But it's just one of those things. Like when it's all together, you can see the time crunch. You can see the like weird jilted delivery of some of the lines, and it was just it was a learning experience. It was one of those things. Like if we had refilmed it, if we had the opportunity to refilm it with the exact same crew, I think that we would do quite a bit better. Um, But. First off, I would give us like 2 weeks to film a 15 minute movie rather than 2 3 days, but you know whatever. Um <laughs> but one of uh, one of <laughs> the this? one of the scenes that we do, uh we've got this we've got this essentially this like drug runner, uh former drug runner who's now, you know, part of this like survivor group that's dealing with um zombies and he sets a like time delayed like C4 blast. And of course, like we didn't have the budget to actually blow something up. So what we did was we filled four Homer buckets from Home Depot with like chunks of drywall and like, like chunks of rock, like pieces of foam, just like junk. We filled four of them. And then there were four people on the inside of this room, this door that blew up who threw those buckets out. And then on top of that, we layered in fake smoke and fake debris And then on top of that, we layered in fake fire and like, and then, and then the director of photography, as she was filming it, shook, shook the screen. So when it's all layered together, it legitimately looks like a relatively good explosion. It, we definitely could have, we definitely could have like, if we were doing, if we had enough time to do dailies, we probably would have reshot it with like six buckets or whatever. Like we would have dubbed, we would have added more to it or we would have done like throw out two buckets, then throw out another two buckets, then throw out a third, two buckets and then composite them on top of each other. So it just looks like more debris. Um, but like, really like it, it's one of the, one of the scenes, one of the sequences that we were really proud of. There were a couple, there was a, there's a head, there's a cranial, there's a zombie who gets his cranium evacuated that we're all really proud of too. It was just a, a great shot. But anyway, um, yeah, ours yeah. is catch up on my brother's forehead in the floor. That was, used, that was our cranial evacuation. I made four, 40 gallons of fake stage blood for the first zombie film we we made. Ooh. So, um, one of the follow-up shorts we did, they're only like three minutes long. Uh, we had planned like 12 of them, but we had only ended up getting enough funding to film two of them. Uh, we actually have one of the actors throw a tomahawk at a Sony RED camera and like the way that the tomahawk comes in, it looks like it's going to hit the camera, and then of course we we cut to a zombie with a tomahawk stuck in its forehead, um, bleeding profusely and falling over and dying. So An expensive. It's, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, <laughs> well, it, like like the guy, like it's that point of view shot, like the zombie yeah. is the camera sort of thing. But anyway, um, Sony Red cameras, at least back then, were really expensive. Like that that was the I think 4K had just started to be a thing that people filmed in. It was like 2013. So we, we, threw, we threw a real tomahawk at a very expensive camera.
1: Yeah. I can't remember what I was watching. What the hell was it? I was watching like some clip, and I don't know if it was a chick that was like doing archery, and they had a camera on the bullseye for some reason.
0: So oh you my can God, see dude.
1: where it's like, where the is coming in and it goes that's right crazy. at the camera. It was, <laughs> it just destroys the camera. I think it, it might've been for a oh, movie, wow. like a movie shot. <laughs>
0: yeah. or she hit the camera. Yeah, well, you hit. always tell, you always tell the actor or the stunt person, don't break the camera right, get as close as you can. But like, that's the thing. Get as close as you can. We want the shot to look really good. So I bet it looked great. it did anyway uh we are way off where we're supposed to be so that that, the point that we were trying to get to was that Istvan 3 was happening essentially at the same time that the battle of prospero and the burning of prospero was happening um that the space-time continuum the fact that there's like vast distances weren't affecting these two events these two events were disconnected from each other enough that they kind of took place at the same time which is important so the Istavon system had only been brought into compliance 15 standard years earlier by the 27th expeditionary fleet under the command of Primarch Corvus Corax of the 19th Legion Raven Guard. The Istavonians had proven themselves professional soldiers who did not break easily, even when confronted by the superhuman might of the Astartes. While there had been stiff resistance, eventually the last elements of opposition to Imperial compliance were destroyed by the Raven Guard at Red Darth Valley on Istavan III itself, with the Istavonians formally surrendering to Corvus Korax and 800 companies of his legion kneeling as defeated foes. However, as this was the way with the Imperium and the Imperial compliance, they were very soon welcomed with open arms as new men of the Imperium of Man. While the full weight of the Remembrancer's Order had yet to make it to all corners of the Crusade at the time, there was still a substantial civilian contingent attached to each expeditionary fleet, and a large number of these were left behind in the Istavan system to re-educate the newly compliant population to the truce of the imperial truth. The planetary governorship of Istavan III itself and the task of leading this reeducation was given to Varis Prahl, a retired major of the 11th Lastran Rifles and a career politician of the Ultima Segmentum. Not only would he rule in the emperor's name, but he would have the task of dismantling the traditional religious structures that had defined the planet society up to that point.
1: An interesting name. Varus.
0: Varus var- Prawl. Oh, Prawl. It looked like oral. Prahl. Yeah, a I, I, I typo there. But Varus Prawl. It's a, it's a really interesting name. Well, yeah, basically Istvan. Istvan Three, a lot like a lot of the other planets that the Great Crusade had come across, had a religious structure in place, and that religious structure kind of went to that like that idea that we talked about last episode. This like primordial truth, not, and they're not calling it the primordial truth, and they're not calling them the Chaos Gods, obviously, but like they worshipped deities, they worshipped gods that could be pretty easily six degrees of Kevin Bacon back to one of the dark gods, one of the ruinous powers. And this was something that like the great crusade just encountered time and time again. And, and of course, as we talked about, as we got into a little bit of an argument about last time, cause we were trying to, Marky was not an argument, but a conversation. Cause Marky was trying to figure out where is that point where
1: religious fervor <laughs> becomes
0: traitor. Uh, this is one of those things, you know, at this point, the raven guard leave Istvan 3 and who's to say that Erebus and corferon didn't start immediately pulling strings on the planet to cause what came next there there's nothing that says that happened but there's nothing that doesn't say that happened
1: <laughs> were the uh, ishtavonians Ishvanians the people of oh, ishtavon
0: ishtavonians like i like that i think were they fighting I think it's marines as well? but i like that yes So during the original compliance, or during the original battle of compliance, the Raven Guard landed on the planet, and again, eight hundred companies landed on the planet. Well, eight hundred companies were involved in taking the system. So you know, whatever it is, like two, three hundred companies land on the planet, and they're putting up a resistance against the Space Marines. At that Mm. point, Um, it didn't last for long, but they were very well organized. (laughs) They were very well disciplined, and there was some respect involved. Yeah, it was definitely one of those, like, this is a good fight. This wasn't like, this wasn't the, we'll send one space marine to take that entire planet. This was like, Legion was involved doing it. (laughs) (laughs) This one space marine just murdered their entire military. Just murked everything. Once the crusade had moved on, though, Estevan III would prove a tough nut to crack, and the situation that Governor Prawl was left with would only worsen. Eventually, he ordered the imperial garrison forces to tear down the temples and breach all the sealed vaults of ancient religious sites in an attempt to break the superstitious fears which seemed ingrained in the Istavanians. Estev- now, I, I like the way that you pronounce the Istavanians. I like that, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm never going to remember it. <laughs> I already forgot it. i was like what did i say it's unknown as to whether this campaign was successful as warp storms worsened between the istavon system and the core worlds effectively cutting off all communication six Terran years after the last athropathic communication from istavon 3 was received by the high lords of terra or by the council of terra at this point excuse me a death guard patrol ship on the very edge of explored imperial space picked up a faint echo of astropathic traffic from the lost world. While the message was garbled and incomplete, it was clear that the world of Istvan III had fallen again, its people having risen up in religious rebellion to topple the imperial planetary government. The new former governor, the now former governor Vardas Prowl himself, having become a turncoat and possibly a mutant or psyker, he had led the revolt himself and the streets of the planetary capital of Coral City, ran red with the blood of non-believers. The message was estimated at the time to be at least two years old, and possibly as old as six years, meaning that it could have happened months after the Raven Guard left, but it couldn't be ignored. The Rebellion of Istvan III and its tens of millions from compliance was a black mark on the track record of the Great Crusade. Additionally, if one such world could turn so easily, sedation and malcontent could easily spread from it like a virus, especially in the light of a rebellion led by a planetary governor who had been given a writ to rule by the emperor himself. It fell to the war master Horus to bring Vardis Prahl and Istavan III to the emperor's judgment, and the war master vowed to make a fearful and bloody example of the planet communicating a clear and intentional price to all other human worlds on the cost of sedition against the Imperium. At this point in the Great Crusade, even though Horus had already fallen and had begun to collect his core allies for the coming conflict, no one in the wide Imperium knew this. Horus was still playing the loyal and devoted son. So that whole, I will bring bloody retribution to you who have gone against my father, that was all Horus playing word service. It would be István III and this rebellion which provided Horus with the perfect opportunity to strike the first blow of his own rebellion against the Emperor, a blow which would fall hardest on his own gene sons.
1: I was going to say, it was almost a situation like, how many times I got to teach you this lesson, old man? But it's really yeah. Horus like, well, I'm just going to beat the shit out of the guys that are faithful to the Emperor and I'll just keep
0: all the, keep all the baddies, right? Basically, like that... Horace is playing regicide at this He's starting to play regicide at this point. So what units does he keep back? How does he lie? You know, and, and the Emperor is like, Hey, I gave this dude governorship and he turned against me. Go teach him a lesson. And Horace is like, Yep, Dad, of course, Dad. Love you, Dad. But like, you know, well, this, his fingers, this was his a fingers guy. are crossed behind his back. Wasn't this a for, different because there is Varus and there's Varus and Vardis. It's Unless Vardis. It's the, same it, guy. it's the same guy. I just okay, pronounced okay. it Varus the first time because I'm an idiot. It's Vardis Prawl. Gotcha, okay, okay. <clears throat> Thank thanks for pointing that out. I was just gonna pretend that I didn't make that mistake.
1: <laughs> I was like, who's this new fucking guy? Is this
0: his son? I was like, oh. No, no. Nah, nah, so so Varus So Varus Prawl and v- is actually Vardis Prawl. I just pronounced it wrong the first time.
1: Um actually <laughs>
0: But this was only part of Horus's plans, as the Istvanian conflict also gave him the perfect screen to amass forces loyal to him without stirring any suspicions. The system's location, far removed from the Core Worlds in the Ultima Segmentum, and the screen of constant warp storms provided even further cover. Orders were given for four of the Space Marine Legions to rendezvous in the system, the Death Guard, Emperor's Children, World Eaters, and of course the Warmasters' own Sons of Horus. Horus further used this opportunity to move other forces of the Imperial Army around like pieces on a regicide board, using his power as War Master to set the stage for his coming or fault. The Primarchs Lionel Johnson, Sanguinius, and Reboot Gilliman were sent to muster in the Cygnus Cluster and the Viridian systems, both which were also far distant and in dangerous and isolated corners of the Imperium. None of these Primarchs had any reason at this point to doubt Horus, and they set about their tasks dutifully. Effectively moving three of the most powerful of the Loyalist Legions, the Dark Angels, Blood Angels, and Ultramarines, as far away from Terra and the Istavan system as they could be. The rest of the Legion Astardes, the Night Lords, Alpha Legion, Iron Warriors, Raven Guards, Salamanders, and Iron Hands were all actively involved in various campaigns and effectively bound to other tasks across the wider Imperium. The word-bearers, as we mentioned last episode, had long fallen into step with the Ruinous powers, with Logar, Corpheron, and Erebus already working alongside the Warmaster. In some cases, they had already worked to sway or corrupt some of these other legions, but we'll get to that later. The White Scars and the Imperial Fists were engaged in operations in the Segmentum Solar, leaving them too close to the Emperor for Horus to chance contacting them directly. And lastly, the Space Wolves and Thousand Suns were already caught up in a great war with one another as these events were beginning to cross over with the end of the Burning of Prospero. So as Horus is gathering everybody in the Istavan system, the Thousand Suns and the Space Wolves are like on the last stages of the Battle of Prospero. Prospero is gone.
1: So Prospero being the time or event where... magnus Magnus was trying to get in contact with the emperor by sending a gnarly psychic message and breaking through to the golden throne and then the emperor being like no bad space wolves go slap them and the space wolves were like oh we're gonna slap them all right and they slapped the shit out of prospero right the planet that magnus was on or in charge of
0: Right. And again, a lot of that came because Horus intercepted the message between the emperor and Lehman Russ and basically twisted the emperor's message to insinuate that Lehman Russ was to eradicate the Thousand Sons, not to bring them
1: in for the emperor's judgment. Horus
0: screwed over Magnus then. Horus, well, I mean, Horus put into place events that he knew would push Magnus to where he wanted Magnus.
1: Gotcha. Okay, okay. So he's he's over here playing 4D chess kind of thing. Yeah,
0: he he's also got... needed to he also needed to remove as many in order for his and Logar in a lot of ways plan at Istvan three to like take place. He had to basically make sure that all of these other pieces were locked down. Gotcha. He had to have complete control over his core, and the core being Emperor's children, World Eaters, Death Guard, and Sons of
1: Right. Wars. If there were others that were to join him, then you know he was putting the pieces in place for it to happen right. but if it weren't then you know then he he's would already at least got his
0: court. have this strong core yeah and he wanted to be clear he wanted sanguinius to be on his side but he knew sanguinius would never go against the emperor but sanguinius and horus were like ridiculously good friends up until all of this shit started happening so at the edge of the Istvan system, the massive war fleet began to gather and the first actions of the campaign to bring the system back into compliance took place. The war master making a good show of taking out rebel outposts and retaking valuable assets in the name of the emperor. The elite first company of the emperor's children led by Lord Commander Edeleon. Idolan. 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 yeah. I want to say Edeleon. Ed Edeleon, Yeah. Eidolon. led by Lord Commander Eidolon, fought alongside... Yeah, that's okay. The, the elite first company of the Emperor's children, led by Lord Commander Eidolon, Eidolon, fought alongside the seventh company of the Death Guard under command of Battle Captain Nathaniel Garrow against the traitorous forces on Istvan Extremis, the outermost planet in the system. During the thickest of the fighting against a Slannish Psyker, known as a War Singer, Garrow was seriously injured. His torso and arm were crushed and his right leg was torn from his body from about the mid-thigh down. He was only saved from death by the intervention of the Emperor's Children Apothecary Fabius. Pressed into a corner, Lord Commander Edelon made use of an unknown ability granted by a modified tracheal implant bonded to his vocal cords that allowed him to produce a nerve-paralyzing shriek similar to the same type of attack used by the warrior breeds of the Xenos lair. And while the powerful ability allowed Edelon to close allowed Edelon to close and kill the war singer bringing the Astartes to victory, its very existence was a symptom of the corruption that had already begun to worm its way into the emperor's children. So the emperor's children had started to experiment with sonic weapons and essentially like augmentation that was outside of the laws Standard of what would be, yeah, imperial, yeah, yeah, yeah. weaponry. So they had uh, Fabius had grafted this, or it's implied that Fabius had grafted these xenos like sonic weapons to some of the commanders in the Emperor's children's uh, tra- tracheas. so they could essentially produce, use their vocal cords to produce the same like scream that paralyzed that they were fighting that's gnarly dude yeah so like xeno sonic tech is being fucking implanted into yeah. the emperor's children when we get to covering the emperor's children specifically which will get their own like yeah it's because like, they're a legion they'll get just, their own just picturing series. them
1: like metal screaming fucking through their helmets it's essentially just a, a badass fucking Uh, It's mental
0: picture. (laughs) It's kind of like the banshee screams. Like it, it psychically locks you in place, and then they can just fucking murder you. Fulgrim himself had been delayed from making it into the system. Edelon and his task force had made the rendezvous in his stead, alongside a large portion of the Death Guard and their Primarch Mortarion, and the World Eaters and their Primarch Angron, and of course Horus and the Sons of Horus. A gathering of three Primarchs was a rare event during the Great Crusade. And this size and concentration of Imperial military forces had not been seen since the Battle of Pargor-Hith system fought against the Oryx about a decade earlier. A force of well over 200,000 space marines alongside Titan Legion support from Legio Mortis, Legio Adox, and Legio Volpa, plus other auxiliary forces. It was this massive war fleet that took up and surrounded Istavan III. Horus met with the two other Primarchs and the Lord Commander of the Emperor's Children on his flagship, the Battle Barge Vengeful Spirit, to talk strategy of the coming conflict, or so it was designed to seem. Horus needed to establish initial face-to-face communication with his allies, gauging their loyalty in preparation for the coming storm. It was also the case that Horus had anticipated that Angron Mortarion and Lord Commander Edelon, speaking for Fulgrim, had also identified elements within their own legions whose loyalty to the emperor was unshakable. And again, Corferon, Erebus, and Logar are always working in the background to communicate some of these things. So whether or not these were ideas that Angron, Mortarion, and Fulgrim came up with, or whether or not this was Logar putting the pieces into place for Horus, is kind of left up to us to decide. Most of these forces were Terran born space marines, still mixed into the legions who had been sworn to the Emperor before they had been reunited with their Primarchs, a who posed a great threat to the conspiracy of the War Master and the coming rebellion. It was during this meeting that Horus revealed his plan to rid these legions of these dissenting forces and those of his co conspirators. Astartes warriors that in these four assembled legions, whose loyalty to Horus could not be guaranteed, were commanded to prepare for an assault on the planet. Astartes of the four assembled legions, whose loyalty to Horus could not be guaranteed, were commanded to prepare for an assault on the planet. This wasn't a small population either. Each of these forces made up roughly one third of the legions that they came from. So 33% of each of the legions. These initial forces would be deployed by drop pod with limited gunship and teleport support, and only the Death Guard would be landing with any significant armored support. These forces were the so-called first wave, and the plan promised more support was to follow. However, these loyalists would actually be separated with no means of escape off-planet. Those that did not die in the taking of Istavan III would discover to their horror, Horus's plan to make the planet their graves, no matter the cost.
1: So... He essentially took anybody that he suspected or thought to be truly loyal to the Emperor, and then sent them to the planet. Yeah, he basically uh,
0: said, "Yeah." And a lot of times, they ended up being mixed units because of the way that the Terran Space Marines had been mixed in. So there was actually a lot of like weird confusion right at the offset. Mm-hmm. They di- they didn't understand why they were being split from their units and why they were being sent down, and of course the battle brothers that were in the units that were loyal to Horus at that point. were like, Oh, don't worry. You know, we're coming later with this and that. And the other, it was all planned out. It was essentially, we'll get rid of all of them. We'll send them into the meat grinder of Istavan three and whatever doesn't survive. We'll deal with later. Mm, okay. But it allowed Horus to play the dutiful son while also dealing with his own internal enemies. Yeah. He's he cleaning, got, he, cleaning. He got house. to trim the
1: fat essentially of, yeah, of loyalty off of, of four legions
0: essentially, right? Yeah, good way to put it. And the fact that it was thirty three percent of each legion is a staggering number because you think like we just talked about how Corvus Corax took Istvan III the first time and he had eight hundred chapters, so that's what eight, 80,000 men. Because a chapter is 100 strong? I believe so. Well, 100,
1: 200? I don't know it was the exact a cha- numbers. It was a,
0: ch- a chapter may have been 1,000 back It's a lot yeah. of guys. It's a lot. Le- I mean, again, 200,000 were... 200, space marines had gathered at Istavon III, which is just like... Mind you know, whether welcome. or not it's 80,000 sp- or 200, you know, <laughs> obviously it's a lot more. <laughs> the assault on the proto-hive capital of Coral City was split into four closely linked primary target zones, which housed different parts of the government, and all of which might be where the traitor Vardis Prahl was hiding. The emperor's children would drop into the Precentor's Palace, Coral City's governmental center, while the world eaters would drop into the plazas which adjoined the palace areas, where resistance was deemed to likely be the strongest and swiftest. The Death Guard would drop on the western fortifications a network of imperial-built bastions and bunkers with the goal of either eradicating or boxing in the rebel garrison forces they contained so they couldn't join the fight. The final target was located east of the city in a vast and ancient complex of tomb spires, shrines and temples known to the Istavonians as the Siren Hold. This was considered to be the hardest target and one of the most important and would fall to the war master's own legion, the Sons of Horus. It was the heart of the religious rebellion and likely Istavon, and like Istvan Extremis, the siren hold was in the clutches of psyker witches known as the Warsingers. Several other secondary targets had been identified, including Coral City's starport and other sites of important infrastructure with each of these being assigned to smaller imperial task forces. the One of the reasons that the most important job was given to the Sons of Horus was one of the biggest things, one of the biggest people that Horus had to deal with was Gravel Loken, who was part of the Mournival, And the Mornaval was four Sons of Horus that served on the War Master Horus's like... Internal War Council, essentially. Uh, Abaddon was one. Loken was another. Little Horus was one, and I can't remember the last guy's name because he actually turns into a demon. I'm, I will talk about him as we get into the heresy more. But Loken was essentially at Horus's side. Loken was one of the only was the only member of the Mornoval that went Horus was wounded and kidnapped and taken to the Temple of the Serpent Lodge on Davin. He was the only member of the Mornaval that was like, This is wrong. Let Horus die. Like, as much as it pains me and as much as I am dying inside, using dark sorcery to save him is not what he or the Emperor would want. Like, that was Loken. So Horus had to deal with Loken and he gave Loken command of the hardest part of the assault, sending him directly into like the religious center hold of this slanishy cult essentially In hope of him getting killed correct basically i gotta get rid of it yeah i have to get rid of you i'm giving you the worst task and yeah, of course you know to loken it's it's the best honor task i would be honored by being given this important task exactly yeah this first assault wave was an iron rain of drop pods which smashed into coral city While strategic lance strikes from the orbiting war fleet erased ground targets across the world's surface. In the opening moments of the strike, the space marines had air superiority, and that would be assured through the rest of the conflict. However, fighting on Istvan III was far heavier than the initial wars of compliance had ever been. Along the walls and trenchworks of the western fortifications, the Death Guard hammered home their initial attack before relentlessly advancing. They were opposed by self-mutilated devotees of slanish who were armed with imperial weapons and using imperial tactics these traitor forces of istavonians even using basilisks and malkador heavy tanks in the defense the death guard terminators and tactical squads advanced tearing down gun towers and clearing trench lines the close barrages from both sides of the walls had taken their toll and their fate was sealed as the titans of Legio Mortis made earth-shaking ground fall to the west of the city before unleashing their awesome destructive forces against what was left of the battlements and bastions. The battle for Preceptor's palace and the surrounding area was a chaotic slaughter as the world-eaters attacked en mass, their drop pods smashing into the plazas that approached like meteors. Thousands of world-eaters tore into the disordered garrison troops, and the roar of carnage and combat engulfed the heart of the city. Then the tight-ordered orbital streaks of gold fire speared into the palace itself, shaking a structure which had been built by imperial military architects to resist insurrection and even orbital bombardment, a house built for the imperial governorship. Still, the palace stood in defiance of of the orbital bombardment. These defenses had been expected, though, and they were used and the bombardment was used by the Emperor's children, known for their close drills and pre planning, to land amid the chaos and perfect formation, overwhelming the outer defenses made to resist just such drop pod attacks, swarming in through multiple entry points, while dreadnought, siege claws, and melt guns made new entry points into the palace. Even so the resistance from inside was fierce.
1: So they were uh they were putting some hurt on this palace, huh?
0: Yeah. Well, and, and the Death Guard just tore up the defenses of the western side of the city, which they did, essentially, so the Titan Legions could land. It's
1: crazy that they <clears throat> developed this almost anti-Imperium castle yeah. and then have to go through and fight this and de- anti-Imperium castle.
0: It's a city made with, essentially, all of the teachings of Dorne and Perturabo, right? To defend against attackers like Dorn and Perturabo, because that was the only thing that the Imperial governors should fear. And then, of course, the Imperial so, garrisons left behind are Imperial Army officers with Imperial Army training and Imperial Army equipment. Okay, so equipment. This,
1: this wasn't created. This was created in advance to. To the basically Imperium, hold out against Space Marines when eventually that would come. So it's not like the Space Marines were there and they developed this castle to be a good defense for the planet. This the planet went traitor essentially and then developed this castle. Right?
0: Is that is that no, how that went? So, so when Estevan III was originally brought to compliance fifteen years before this, uh, before this happened, they rebuilt. You know the, the Space Marine Legion and the garrison stays in order to rebuild the planet in the standard pattern of the Imperium. And because gotcha. the Imperium okay. was essentially facing down Oryx and Eldari at that point, the Imperial, the, the palaces, the Imperial palaces, the infrastructure that the Imperium built was essentially built to defend against those Xenos forces. Gotcha. So, so if you, they
1: can basically defend against themselves, they would be able to defend against orks and Eldari. anything. Gotcha. okay. Right. okay.
0: And they would never have to defend against themselves because this is a loyal city of the Imperium. So essentially, like they, they didn't do it on purpose, as, as you were kind of seeing. They did it on accident. They built their own worst enemy on accident. Gotcha. But at the same time, the Emperor's children know how to deal with it. The world leaders know how to deal with it. They, they realize it's going to be a hard fight, but they also know how to break it down. That makes sense? Yeah. Or have the tactics to be able to take it down. Right. Across the city, the Sons of Horus drop pot assault descended on Siren Hold, a larger area than the precincts of the Perceptor's palace. The hold was a scattering of great irregular conical tomb spires, like great deep ocean smokestacks that rose hundreds of meters into the sky. The Sons of Horus came under heavy fire and were scattered in their landing, but soon rallied and turned the Siren Hold into a multi-story killing ground. It was here that the Estevanian war singers first took to the field, using their manipulation of sound to create bubbles of shielding sonic energy, even while their screaming song shattered a stardy ceramite armor and ruptured flesh, turning bone into powder. On top of this, the warrior cultists threw themselves at the suns, heedless of the shredding balter fire, and that which they lacked in superhuman strength they made up for in fanaticism. Uh, the war singers, by the way, make me think of the, and I'm actually pretty sure this is where the dude got the idea, but the, the enemies that are controlling the cult in the um, 3D animation of Stardase, uh-huh. the, the guys with like the gold masks and the exposed like oh, okay, yeah. spinal columns that are able to like make force barriers and pick up space marines and like twist and break their bodies. Yeah. I think those are war singers.
1: Oh, really? Or I think or like they're at least based to, off of them.
0: Yeah, like based on war singers. It, it it just fits imagery wise. It just fits with the way that these guys are talked about attacking. Huh. They could stop bolter rounds in the air. They could pick up and throw, you know, ceramite armored warriors. They could crush warriors. So like they would pick a a space marine up and they would crush him and like. His, you know, all of his blood and everything would like burst forth from his lenses and his the grill on his mask is like his internal organs were pulverized. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, obviously that that those two things weren't as powerful as war singers are, but who knows? Maybe they were like baby war singers. Also, not to be confused with Eldari war singers, (laughs) although they are slanishy cults. So it's entirely possible that they could have been Drakari war singers, or maybe, well, not. That's the wrong way to put it. It's entirely possible that slanish based its war singers off of Eldari war singers. That's probably a better way to look at it.
1: Because war singers, they're in uh, fantasy, right? Like dark war elf singers,
0: War singers are in fantasy, and there's also a war singer. Uh, that's also one of the. If you're lost on the path of the Farseer, it's one of the steps that you can be. There's bone singers. There's war singers. There's a yeah. bunch of different ones.
1: I think. That's also a uh, position in blood bowl for the elf for the yeah, elf it's,
0: teams. It definitely, it's definitely a war singer. It's definitely an elf flavored word. It's very obvious that these war singers were not Eldari. They were human cultists that had been like genetically modified, but as Coral City was consumed in conflict and the death toll began to become staggering, a great howling sound tore through the streets, drowning out even the sounds of battle. This unnatural scream tore at the brains of the people of Istvan III, filling them with uncontrollable hate and rage. Only the Space Marines' willpower and Autosense' baffling armor allowed them to resist and fight on. At the western walls, the Death Guard and the Legio Mortis had broken open the defenses like an egg. The legionaries were brutally sweeping bunker and tunnel networks, exterminating anything they found. While in the plaza outside the palace, the world eaters stood amidst a sea of slaughter. However, whatever dark power drove the keening howls drove the unarmed populace at the world eaters. First in in dozens, then in their hundreds, and then in the thousands. They came screaming and mad with laughter, and the world eaters were more than happy to slaughter them by the dozen. But as wave after wave smashed into them, the space marines were pushed back by sheer overwhelming weight of mortal bodies. The Astartes of the 12th Legion fighting back to back, tossing frag grenades into densely packed bodies just to buy precious seconds they needed to reload. While their heavy weapon squads ran dry, cutting bloody swaths in the oncoming horde with heavy bolters and missile launchers. In the tangled warrens of the Siren Hold and the Preceptor's Palace, victory was being clawed from the rebels a meter at a time. Each psyker witch war singer claiming the lives of many space marines before it could be killed, and the strangely mutilated and surgically modified elite warriors of the rebels bearing unknown relic weapons which spit death in blasts of sound and darts of liquid metal. Deep within the tomb spires, the sons of Horus Spearhead, under the command of Senior Captain Gavril Loken, fought their way into a strange corpse-filled shrine of some dark god, later named the Death's Tomb, facing down and killing the war singer they found there. Even as across the city, a small task force of Emperor's children, under the command of famed swordsman Captain Lucius, Fought their way into Vardis Prowalus, thrown in the room to confront the traitor in person.
1: Uh, war dancers. That's what they are. Not war singers, war dancers. War dancers.
0: You are right. You are right. They are war dancers. I'm getting bone singers and war dancers. But war singer definitely sounds like an Eldari term. Oh, so again. Definitely. These are not Eldari, these are humans. <laughs> and they're and they're genetically and surgically modified warriors in a lot of cases. Um, And it's unclear as to whether or not that was something that the Estevanians did during their initial conflict against the Raven Guard, if maybe that's why they had been such stiff competition or such stiff resistance as they actually had genetically modified warriors. It's talked about or it's hinted at enough in the Great Crusade lore that a lot of the planets had either like bionically or surgically or genetically modified super soldiers they just weren't as good as space marines yeah but the idea of a super soldier is not unique
1: (laughs) very much like the uh what do you call them the crazies on Terra. uh
0: what do you call them the Uh, the techno barbarians yeah techno barbarians thank you yeah same same idea but basically like whatever whatever orc looking tech can we strap to our bodies to make us stronger (laughs) yeah we
1: might have we might have brought it up before, but kind of like uh, Trigun, you have like that dude that was like all mechanically modified. He had like the crazy uh, bulldozer arm that he could like throw a claw out and stuff.
0: Yeah, uh, I believe that was Trigun, right? I I want to say uh, Trigun being one of the few that I actually watched back in the day. I feel like that was Trigun, yeah. or the the troll in the second Hellboy movie that's got the like gauntlet that shoots out on the chain. Yep, yep, yep. The gauntlet fist. Uh, the other thing that it makes me think of is um, they're called crazies in the Rift setting, where they, they're basically, it's how do you take a, a, a normal mortal and make them into a Psyker? You essentially attach a bunch of like bionic implants to their heads, which inject chemicals directly into their brains. <laughs> like an like Eversor but Psyker style? Essentially, yeah. Crazies in the, war, in the Rift's world, not the Warhammer world, crazies in the Rift's world are a very Warhammer-like um enemy uh Hmm. and i mean like riffs riffs came out in the early 80s so like it's just the miasma of like sci-fi culture essentially yeah but crazies have these implants i think they're called mom implants i can't remember what mom stands for it's like mortification over mortality or something something weird like that or immolation but they're basically fire psychers and the way that they make them fire psychers is these implants, which are in their skulls, inject chemicals directly into their brains, making it so that they are never stable or sane. It's like the opposite of a, um, lobotomy <laughs> instead of, instead of making you calmer and easier to deal with, they literally make you crazier and like, because they're enhancing your psychic ability you're like Tyro uh, your pyro not Tyro your pyrokinesis becomes like supercharged and you're you're able to like fire starter things all, Hmm. all over the place but it very much makes me think of like anytime I read some like the Imperium encountered weirdly augmented super soldiers I'm like they're probably not space marine augmented they're probably like super crazy science augmented
1: (laughs) space Marines are chromed up where everyone else is like, they
0: got uh, you know, third party shenanigans. We We put, uh, we put seven adrenaline injectors down your spine and we grafted extra muscles under your forearms. We don't expect you to live more than five years, but we expect you to kill everything in a line for five years as to where the space Marines were built for like longevity and tactics rather than berserk mode. <laughs> it's, just, it's just kind of the picture I get with some of these things. And of course, a yeah. lot of that is like the Imperium is downplaying everything they encountered. Oh, no, it wasn't that hard. It was just crazies. It, wasn't, very it was imperial propaganda. Very, very easy to deal with these, these malcontents. <laughs> when Lucius broke in to the throne room and faced down Prawl, he found the man armored in twisted Baroque splendor and wielding strange psychosonic weapons, proving without a doubt that he was the master of this arcane cult rebellion. However, even with these toys and tools and his augmented might, Prawl wasn't enough to best Captain Lucius, who slew him after a long but desperate battle. Lucius was not known for not winning sword fights, so in a combat that Lucius is involved in is described as a desperate battle, I can only it's think crazy. that like
1: he yeah. definitely
0: was sweating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, it was crazy. The
1: it was not he, a fight you wanted to be in. <laughs> yeah, the fact that a genetically modified dude of his own devices made a space marine that was well
0: renowned for his sword fighting sweat is crazy. Yeah as it's it's uncomfortable to think about that's one of those fights where you're like if you had been in the room you'd be like i are, do they have two arms and are fighting with one sword each or do they have 10 yeah. arms and are they dude, fighting with 10 swords i don't know out, what's going
1: on yeah dude came out like general grievous and lucius was right. like oh fuck
0: <laughs> <laughs> this will be a fight to remember it is unclear if the death of Prawl, the so-called strike which took the head of the serpent, or Lokan's destruction of the death tomb in Siren Hold, that ended the strange keening howl that plagued the city, but it collapsed. With it, the power which had maintained the Estevonian resistance ended, and with hours, the rebellion was in tatters. The invasion force, even though it hadn't been supported with any additional waves, and although it had cost tens of thousands of enemy dead, Stood victorious. After a hard won and well discerned victory with all major objectives taken and secured, the space marines on the planet were jubilant. However, unknown to them, the true horror of Istvan 3 was about to strike. The other thing that I found really interesting revisiting all of this, and I, I read the book, but the like zombification, if you want to say, of everyone on Istvan 3. And then what they do is they just throw themselves at the world eaters. And it's not that the world eaters are having a hard time slaughtering them. It's that there are so many that the world eaters are pushed back, which is not something that like you think about. <laughs> that, like, that happens. <laughs> unarmed <laughs> civilians are swarming the world eaters in great enough numbers that the world eaters are falling back. Like, what the fuck?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's like a... Uh... Very forty k imperial guard kind of way of thinking of things, right? Yeah, yeah. You just gum up everything with with bodies. bodies. Yeah.
0: Well, and like just just the the imagery of world eaters standing back to back and throwing frag grenades into like close combatants. like people that are only a couple of feet away yeah. just to, to create time uh, to yeah, reload, to reload. like that's it. It's, it's 100% like zombie horde survival. Like yeah. that's what it is. It's, it's nuts. Betrayal
1: order. The guns to fire said Horace in his cold voice. Let the galaxy burn. Warmaster master Horace during the
0: virus bombing of Ishvan three. Gonna get real. I love how you say Istvan. I, I don't, I imagine there's a chance you're right, but I've always said it, Istvan. So, <laughs> shortly after the Battle of Coral City had been turned in the favor of the Space Marine forces on the ground, all communication with the orbiting Imperial fleet fell silent. While at the Western fortifications, the Titans of Legio Mortis began a silent withdrawal from the city walls into the plains beyond. While high above, the battleships and battle barges of the combined fleet began to slowly descend into low orbit to begin a saturation bombardment of the planet below. The decks of the Vengeful Spirit, Firebird, Androninus, Killing Star, Indomitable Will, Gauntlet of Spite, Warchild, and the Conqueror roared as orbital bomb racks emptied and macro cannon batteries unleashed their hellish torrent against the planet below. These bombs were one of the Imperium's deadliest Exterminatus-class weapons, munitions which carried the life-eater virus, weapons only the Emperor or War Master could even commit into battle. The blanket of thousands of munitions exploded in low orbit, and the virus began its deadly work, infecting and destroying every living thing it came into contact with. The necrophage which worked inside it, turning everything into sick liquid rot, Melting the flesh from human bones even as the virus converted the victim's lungs into pools of decaying fluid, stifling any screams they may have made. Plant life turned into black sludge as if years of blight had rotted them in seconds. Black mists of corpse rot and miasmic vapor swallowed empty concrete and steel canyons of cities that had been turned into graveyards. The lives of 8 billion people claimed in a matter of minutes while the jungles and plains outside collapsed into cancerous decay and rot, even the oceans turning into a green sludge of noxious rot and reactive vapors. To the Warmasters fleet above, the planet must have looked like a rapidly rotting fruit caught on time-lapse. Istvan III died, and the psychic shock of so many deaths shrieked out across the warp, briefly obscuring even the constant bright beacon of the Astronomicon. But the destruction wasn't over as the life-eater virus even consumed the very stuff of the air, converting it into even more rotting, fetid, combustible material. All it took was a single lance strike, fired from the vengeful spirit, and the entire planet was consumed in a raging firestorm, which wiped cities from its surface and stripped entire continents, flesh, stone, and metal being either vitrified or melted in the unimaginable flash of temperature. Those Astartes who had survived the initial viral attack by hiding or having the good luck to be in airtight shelters found themselves consumed in raging fires as they fought to find shelter once again. By the time the echoes of the Lance's recoil on the vengeful spirit had faded, Istavan III had become a dead planet, and Horus had at last declared his open defiance of the Emperor. That shit goes hard, dude. That is crazy one of the crazy things that i know specifically from reading the novel is that the legio mortis titans withdrew onto the planes and then completely airtight sealed and shut themselves down because they knew this was coming and there wasn't essentially there wasn't enough time to withdraw the titans yeah so the titans backed off completely sealed themselves and survived this to be picked up later. What, <laughs> what the fuck dude? So like, these These are the traitors. These are the traitor. These are the, traitor titans, right? these, these are the, yeah. All of the Titans at this point, uh, there's a handful that aren't, but all of the Titans at this point that are in this fleet, essentially are traitors. That's crazy. This act of heresy
1: shatters all ties of kinship. Those I was proud to call brother. I now fight to bloody death. No quarter will be asked and none sought. These are the vilest foes we must fight. There shall be no peace, no rest, no succor until the end, until the face of Horus stares down from traitor's Gibbet and all his heretic followers are vanquished. Anonymous loyalist ishvan
0: 3 atrocity even before the first treacherous blow had been struck Horace's grand plan had begun to unravel unknown to the warmaster before the virus bombing had begun several astartes loyal to the emperor who had been spread among the fleet still discovered what was to come and moved to resist chief among them was battle captain nathaniel garo of the death guard a terran space marine who was among the first recruited into the 14th legion he acted swiftly, rallying other loyalists to him, dispatching warning messages to those space marines fighting on Istavan III, and capturing the Death Guard heavy frigate the Eisenstein. In the Emperor's Children's Fleet, Captain Saul Travitz, who had long had deep suspicion about his legion's own growing secrecy and unorthodox actions, uncovered the truth within mere moments to spare. He stole a Thunderhawk gunship and descended onto the planet's surface, bringing with him a warning of the horrors about to be unleashed. Those who heard Travitz's warning were able to find airtight refuge before the virus bombing began. The world eaters on the planet's surface were the farthest from cover and suffered the worst of the bombardment. The virus either dissolving exposed pipes and armor joints or finding its way into their systems through battle damage the stoic and mostly silent superhuman warriors falling to their knees and screaming in agony sounds made even more aberrant for the fact that they were never heard. So these guys comms are on as they're fucking dying inside their suits. And the other space Marines who are hearing them are like rocked to their core because they have never heard another space Marine scream in terror and pain. Like it just doesn't happen. And now you've got world eaters, by and large considered like kind of the badass of the badasses in a lot of ways, screaming in terror and pain. Yeah, that, that'll fuck you up. The virus broke down material at a molecular level, and the Astartes inside their suits were turned into rotting soup and strips of flesh even before their armor had begun to rot. Of those who did make it into the bunkers, some only found out they were too late after the doors had sealed. Their screams as the virus ate at them, spelling doom for those now trapped inside with them and it. Those few world eaters and other Astartes on the surface who did manage to fully seal their suits in time found themselves consumed moments later in the firestorm, once again fighting for any scrap of cover that might mean survival. So there were those, you know, these are airtight suits so there were those that were able to like activate the systems that completely sealed them off and survived the virus bombing only then to see like walls of nuclear fire racing not nuclear fire but walls of essentially like nuclear blast fire that level of destruction racing at them as like the entire atmosphere can busts in layers
1: so is this almost like? Uh, do you remember? I think it was called The Rock. It might have been, might have been The Rock.
0: Oh, the the green stuff that like yeah. melts the Yeah, yeah, that the uh, the life eater virus is like a super nasty version of uh, a nerve, that, a paralytic that, that, nerve, that. nerve agent. Yeah. But what it does is it not only does the paralytic nerve agent stuff to you, but then it starts breaking down all of your. It it essentially. The life eater virus is designed to turn all living matter into combustible gas. Fuck, that's crazy. It's,
1: it's it just designed turns everything to, into napalm. Yeah.
0: Essentially, it's designed to render it because that's what they would. They would drop it and then they would light the atmosphere on fire. And that's it. That's exterminatus. Your planet's not coming back from that. God damn. Those who are spread throughout the fleets, loyalists. Not fortunate enough to have received warning, and suspected loyalists that had not been involved in the ground attack, watched from the battle barges and surrounding ships in horror before they found either knives plunged into their backs or into their throats. Many did fight back and resisted valiantly, but they had been caught unaware, and it wasn't long before their blood stained the decks of these ships. This was not a fate that awaited only the Astartes of the fleet either. As large numbers of human Imperial Army troops, support staff, Imperial iterators, civilian functionaries who found themselves caught on these orbital ships were massacred by the legionaries loyal to Horus. But even here, not all went according to plan, and many of these mere mortals escaped their Astardes hunters, disappearing into the bowels of the great ships to carry out campaigns of sabotage before they were eventually hunted down. So it's one of those things, like, Horace thinks he's got this shit on lock, but as is the way of the chaos gods, and as is the way, in a lot of ways, of Gork and Mork, <laughs> there's, there's always that little bit of, it's going to fuck you up. You, you think you're cunning, but you ain't cunning enough. Yeah, there's always that 10%, right? Yep, exactly. During the orbital attack, at least a torpedo monitor, the Ducroy remained, or the Ducroy, The Ducroy, The Ducroy. I imagine the Ducra the Ducra. I imagine the decra tastes like you think a spaceship would taste if it was in yeah, it tastes like if what was a spaceship space would rub against another year. spaceship's water <laughs> supply that's what it would taste like that's, that's what the Ducra tastes like. so the decra looks like the Ducra looks like the painting of a spaceship uh, interpreted by a 16th century renaissance painter <laughs> During the orbital attack, at least a torpedo monitor, the Decroy, remained loyal and even turned its firepower against the Warmaster's traitor fleet in a futile attempt to stem the bombardment. It managed to destroy several escort ships and inflict significant damage to the Killstar before it was consumed in the crossfire barrage of the traitor ships. Having refused an order to surrender, the Mechanicus Ordo Reductor Gallius Xerxes-977, which had joined the fleet late and was not part of Horace's original plan, also had to be blown out of orbit, again at considerable cost and damage to the traitor fleet. But the ship was ravaged, and soon its disintegrating hulk slammed down into Istavan 3, even as the flamestorm ravaged the planet. On the edge of the fleet's cordon, the heavy cruiser sunstone became the scene of a protracted onboard battle. What should have been an easy takeover and assassination of one of the Council of Terra's primary representatives to the Great Crusade, Duke Mordicher became a frantic deck-by-deck battle, the Duke's sworn lifeguard leading a resistance that the Emperor's children had not been prepared for. It's unknown as to what the Duke's fate eventually was, as before the bombardment had been completed, the Sunstone's forward magazine detonated, leaving the ship a splintered and gutted wreck. I really like the idea that essentially like not an Evasaur assassin, but whatever the level down, like the death cultist level down was this dude's, this Duke's protector, like his bodyguard. Yeah. And when the, and when shit went South, that one guy just in an effort to protect the Duke, fucked the emperor's children to the point where the ship was scuttled. Like the Duke didn't live, but all of those emperor's children also died like that, that guy, that death cultist at the last minute, I'm assuming must've been like, like, um, bring li- it on the Lieutenant <laughs> and, uh, and what's her face, uh, Vasquez and alien yeah, with yeah. The grenade and <laughs> like, fuck you. I, if I'm going out, you're going out. <laughs>
1: Dude, that's crazy. There's a lot of badasses in this story. It makes me want to read or heresy books. Yeah.
0: And the important ones in the important names that we've mentioned so far are Lucius, obviously, Nathaniel Garrow and the Eisenstein are important or very important. Uh, Gavril Loken comes back. It, it's going to be a big part of the story moving forward. There are definitely people that ser- there's an entire aftermath of the Istvan 3 atrocity, which we haven't talked about yet. But, yeah, essentially, it definitely doesn't yeah. seem like
1: it went over smoothly.
0: It did not go as according to Horace's play. It was a great success but it wasn't entirely to plan. Yeah, definitely
1: um, seemed like it was, uh, it, it wasn't as clean as it could have been, or it wasn't as clean as I guess he wanted it to be.
0: What's that? It's that old saying, your battle plans are only good until the first moment of the battle. Yep. E- everything is eventually going to go out the window. You're, you have to stop worrying about the strategy of the war and you have to start thinking about the tactics of the yeah, war.
1: I forget, I forget the saying, but it's very similar to what you said. It's like no plan Survives that, battle or something like that, I, right?
0: I think it's I think it's no plan survives the first minute of battle. I, I want to say it's something like that. I really feel like I should know it because it was right, I, shou- I should know shouted it. in my vicinity enough times. <laughs> yeah, no plan survives
1: first contact with the enemy. Is that it?
0: Yeah. And I, who said it? Is it uh, some like I think, civil-
1: a, I, I think it's a sun Tzu, sun soothing sun soothing. Oh, I think I so, was yeah. assuming
0: it was one of those like like civil war like sayings or whatever. Like that. Like the other one that I heard a lot was retreat hell to the point where I was like, "Can you guys stop saying that, please?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I get it. You said it once. Thanks. <laughs> oh. dude, I love the old world eaters colors. By the way, the blue the, and the white. blue and white. It yeah. goes hard, dude. It goes it's, hard. It's pretty awesome. That's the other big thing to remember as we're talking about the early Horus heresy too. None of the legion colors as we know them, none of the traitor legion colors as we know them today, except or possibly, no, even the emperor. No, no, the emperor's children. I think the emperor's children are the only ones who have the same colors. Uh, that's a good possibility. Possibly the word bearers too. But, uh, you know, the world eaters have different colors. The sons of Horus don't even exist anymore. Now they're the black legion. Um, yeah, yeah. they're still gold and tech- purple. I guess technically the Death Guard also have the same color, but the now guards? the Death Guard Is that well, it, yeah, well they're Death they're Guard already, now, right? They're already the Death Guard, yeah. But the their their colors aren't necessarily. They didn't. They're not a Legion who chose to change their colors. They're just a Legion who just embraced changed. decay, yeah. so their colors like just became decayed. green, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I believe became they were originally words. green and
1: beige, and then they just kind of turned all green and the green and green, yeah. yeah, green and
0: green and <laughs> Decaying copper. (laughs) Green and flesh. Right. That's where we'll wrap it up for our second episode on the Horus Heresy, picking up next week with the flight of the Eisenstein and the aftermath of the Battle of Istavan III. Not everyone has died, even on the planet, and even though the traitor forces under Horus were unified at its execution, some cracks have already begun to form, even this early, between those who are destined to become the demon Primarchs. Looking for ways to get into contact with us about any of our episodes? Reach out to us through email at either underthehiveofmadness at gmail.com or jimdarkgaming at gmail.com.
1: Or feel free to join our community on Discord. Not only can we talk about all things lore, hobby, tactics, and Warhammer 40K, but you also can get involved in other topics like Age of Sigmar, magic, role-playing games, video games, and much more. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Ryan's on TikTok, or you can find us at www.underthehypeofmadness.com. Spelling and links should be in the show notes below or wherever the show notes are in whatever podcasty location you're listening to us at.
0: (laughs) You can also help the podcast grow by liking and reviewing us wherever you get your podcast fix. Our home is Spotify, but you can also find us on Apple, Google, Audible, and many, many more. Support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash underthehiveofmadness. All Patreon members get access to video podcasts with minimal editing, so you can see our beautiful faces and hear all of our amazing blunders. Plus, all Patreon levels get access to our quarterly painting contest, and we have other perks at higher levels, including the beginning of monthly giveaways. So go on over and check all of that out. Learn anything this episode?
1: Yeah, that there were survivors of uh Ishvan 3 and they all got uh, fucked up and the whole <laughs> scenario wasn't exactly uh a clean cut uh situation. There was a lot of backstabbing and people being surprised and shit not going according to plan.
0: Yeah. It's uh it's it's nuts. Joe's Sump Shack, home of the hive's best Sump Gator and Crab Pot Boil. And don't forget their endless Frost Pepper and Sump Cheddar Biscuits, which pair great with an ice cold bucket of two knoblars and a coat ale. Burning down the propaganda machines, we are the firebrands of the pirate Vox wave. 665.66 UHMR Chemrat Radio. Reminding all of you chemrats, hive mice, and sump ghoulies to keep those dials fixed right here, same ratty frequency for a dose of the same ratty-ass attitude.
1: Amidst the cyclopean ruins of the Frost Hollow, the four-armed emperors emerged, accursed forms made of grotesque melding of forbidden knowledge and the gnawing despair which lurks beneath the ice. Beware of their ravenous gaze. Which can crumble sanity like brittle parchment.
0: More words of wisdom from ancient books. Per S- Scary, scary ancient books. <laughs> 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 what is that? What's the book? That the picture book? Go to sleep, motherfucker. <laughs> Necronomicon. The Necromnomnomicon. <laughs> <laughs>